Hello, I'm Helen Daly. Welcome to Build It, Thou Come. I'll be speaking with some of Australia's most brilliant innovators and entrepreneurs on how they turned their light bulb idea into concrete reality. We had this strong sense that we couldn't fail. There was no way this couldn't work. You know, we really respect our shareholders and, and to me, you survive if you add value. So, you know, I could look at it and say I can buy it for that and I can sell it for that. And so if you've got that ability to buy and sell and trade, some people have got it, some people will never get it. Some are household names and some you may never have heard of yet. On today's episode, I'm speaking to Jeff Wilson, founder and now chairman and chief investment officer of Wilson Asset Management. You might remember Jeff as the guy who almost single-handedly torpedoed Labor's franking credits policy and thereby sunk Bill Shorten's shot at the lodge in 2019's federal election. But Jeff has built his highly respected business from the ground up by backing himself 21 years ago. Essentially, Jeff Wilson invests other people's money, lots of it. Wilson Asset Management started out with 2,000 investors. It now boasts over 82,000 shareholders and it manages $3.5 billion in funds. Jeff Wilson sees himself as a kind of forensic investigator straight out of CSI, but an investigator of companies, not dead bodies. Jeff Wilson, thanks for joining the podcast. Thank you, Helen. How many shareholders do you have now and how yeah. many funds under management yeah. do you look after for oh, people? It's about $3.5 billion, uh, which sounds like a big number. It's a huge <laughs> yeah. number. Uh, and there's uh, about 82,500 shareholders. So, wow. yeah, uh, there's a lot of responsibility you know, from our perspective. We love what we're doing. I had a work experience guy in uh, and uh, I asked him after – you know, observing what we did for a week, what he thought we did, and he said, "You know, you're you're like sort of those special investigators, you know, those detectives." I said, "Well, effectively, what we're trying to do is is we are you know, drilling into trying to understand management companies, what's going to drive a company's earnings, and then and then we've got to work out what that is, and we've got to make sure that no one else can see that. or So um, that you don't pay too much. You get it at a good value price. Correct, relative to everyone else, yeah. Take me back to the beginning. What sort of household did you grow up in? Oh. <laughs> your dad was a, a doctor, yeah. so your folks were well-educated. Yeah, middle class, Melbourne. So um, not super rich? Oh, no, no. Well, one of, one of six kids, yeah. One of I, six? Yeah, so I, I was the third. Third is, and middle. Oh, 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 we got <laughs> a little right. violin out for you, well, just a tiny baby one. No, no, not really. But to me, you think, you know, what drives you? To me, that must be something that drives me. You know, what I retire and I, I, I love playing the game. You know, I see work as a game. Yeah, and maybe, maybe it's something because, yeah, I've got to uh, you know, get the approval of my parents that are up in, up in heaven, you know, <laughs> that I keep pushing myself. I don't know. Were you handed things on a platter as a kid? Did you <laughs> yeah. have to, you know, work oh, through yeah, through yeah, later school yeah, and, yeah, and no, through I was, uni? I was, I was handed my brother's clothes on a platter. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, because uh, we we tended to, or Mum would buy them at the op shop, or well, actually, it was a jumble sale. It was in those days. It used to be the jumble sale. She'd go to the jumble sale. So I remember when we go into the city, you'd wear a. You know, we're young. You'd wear a jacket, and I remember Mum bought at this jumble sale a purple jacket. Anyway. <laughs> And did you suffer for wearing the purple jacket? Well, I only had to wear it when I went into the city with mum, so no one else saw it. Were they tough on you, you folks? Uh, good, good Catholic upbringing. So I think, yeah, I think everyone was sort of brought up you know, with certain values and you had to work. So I'd study the form for the races. And, and at school, myself, in the last two years of school, there was one of the guys at school, he'd, he'd run a book on the Melbourne Cup and myself and this another friend, we'd run a book on the Caulfield Cup. So and it was an all-in book. So, yeah, some of the teachers would have so a bit with us. So you so were very I, numerate and you yeah. were also a gambler uh, or liked gambling. Like gambling, like gambling, mm. like gambling, yeah. Well, my brother, I suppose I had to work out where I fit in in life. Dad's a doctor, mum's a nurse, elder brother, you know, doctor, elder sister, nurse, and then where do I fit in? I actually wanted to be a vet. But my marks in HSC, I sort of, I was a little bit, you know, third child, as you said, a little bit wayward. So too much I, gambling and running well, books I didn't, at school. Well, I didn't, I didn't apply myself in um, HSC, and 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 I subsequently didn't get a great result. So you know, I failed English. So in those days, if you failed English, you failed everything at HSC. So I failed HSC, and then I I started repeating. I was sort of a week and a half into HSC. And then I got an offer. One of the universities down in Melbourne, La Trobe University, was progressive, so they didn't include your English mark. So my other marks were good. You know, I passed on with all my other marks. So I ended up getting – and I applied for science, and I ended up getting into science at La Trobe Uni. So you failed your HSC. Started repeating. Started repeating. Two but weeks then in. Went to uni anyway. Mum and dad were overseas. I think they're in New Zealand or somewhere. And then I just, well, of course, there's no mobile phones. I wouldn't ring them and say, <laughs> and then I just stopped going to school. <laughs> so I thought, you beauty. And that, that's when I started working down the pub. And then you start getting paid and you're sort of heading on a path. And, and then I ended up getting the job at Scottish Amicable in the Investment Department. You began Wilson Asset Management at the end of 1997. Yes. You started managing other people's money, what, on the 1st of January 98? Yes. What on earth gave you the guts and the confidence to think, I can do this? I, I ended up you know, in the funds management game back then. Then I went stockbroking. And in my, you know, before I started funds, in, back into funds management again, one of my clients was Tim Hughes. He, he managed RG, you know, Reg Grundy's money in Australia, RG Capital. And Tim, for a, quite a period of time, said, look, why do you keep stockbroking? Uh, so you, you knew this guy. Yeah. He was an investor for Reg Grundy, who was a major player in the Australian television industry yes. through, what, the 60s, 70s and 80s, really. Yes, yes. And he took you under his wing? Is that well, what no, you're saying? Well, Tim, Tim, he was a client. He was a corporate client. Yeah, I, I was working as a stockbroker. But why broker. did he care whether you were happy as a stockbroker or not? Well, Tim's a, he's a great guy. So I, I suppose he, you know, like people care about other people. He, uh, he said, you know, he used to say, look, why do you work for the broker you work for, which was sort of broker number 10? <laughs> you know, why don't you either go to a, a good broker or what do you really want to do? And and he said that a few times. And I said, look, what I really enjoy is you know, investing money. And so 
I'd like to set up a funds management business at, at, at some point in time. And this was after a, a lot of you know, thought. And he said, oh, well, yeah, I'm happy to you know, back you with some of you know, Reg's money. But it still takes guts and it takes confidence to do that. You were just slightly younger than 40, I think, when you yes. took this big step. Yes. And it was a big step, right? Yeah. Oh, well, there, there were some other dynamics at play as well. So I had a daughter. She was four years of age. Yeah, around that time, working as a stockbroker, you're always trying to work out how you how you beat the opposition. You know, so I think we were getting into work at 6.30 or 7, you know, to have our early morning meetings. So there was a lot of – you're putting a lot of pressure on yourself. I was of the view that sort of my life balance – yeah, you know, was was right out. I mean, really, that's not a term I would think of when I think of you. <laughs> well, but yeah, you know, I wasn't able to have breakfast with my wife and my daughter, and yeah, you know, my daughter was at a beautiful age. Yeah, you know, like that that you yeah, know, three or four years yeah. of age, and so I I was looking at how could I get more balance in my life, uh, and there was a number of things I went through, and I think I wanted stimulation, I want balance, I wanted flexibility, and I wanted a level of stress. Um, but the stress I wanted was good stress, yeah, and sort of stress that I I chose, and so yeah, that's why I was I spent quite a bit of time trying to work out how to get that balance. And I, I said my current job was like a fur-lined mousetrap. I um, mean, effectively a fur-lined mousetrap. I've never heard that term, but I yeah, love it. So yeah, tell us what well, it means. Well, I mean, fur-lined in, in terms of I was getting Luxurious very well and comfy. Well, and- I was getting very well paid, but it was killing me. I was confident that I could you know, find some undervalued companies and. Buy them and hope they go up and you know make some money for the investors and you know would I uh, you know would I sit at home and invest by myself or um, well when when I started off on you know, the first of January that year nineteen ninety eight yeah I put all my life savings in it was half a million dollars and you know Tim put half a million of Reg's money in so we started with a million dollars even though you know Reg did put more money in. <laughs> As, As time, time went on, right. I had no more money. So that was, uh, but that wasn't that was, Reg's life savings, was it? No, so no, no He no, took no. a little punt on you <laughs> and you took a big punt and you backed yourself. Yes, yes, yes. Well, well, it was really to get the balance. And, and, and when I started, I actually, around the time there was this um, you know, book called, I think it was called The Empty Raincoat, and it was talking about how everyone's going to change how they work. And you'll have more of a portfolio of jobs. And my thought is I would be – my portfolio then is I wanted to go on a couple of boards. I wanted to write a book. And I thought, oh, I'll have a little funds management business. So that was – the plan was a little funds management business. And you, you know how they say it's very important if, you, if you're if you starting something to try to imagine what it'll be like. I remember closing my eyes before I started and trying to imagine that, oh, if I can get to $200 million of funds under management, then that's sort of the I've made it. I've made yeah. it. Yeah, so, that's what success looked like for that's you. Right. Yeah. Two hundred million yeah. under management. Yeah, and now you have oh three and a half billion. So we, we got there, and we started with you know, two thousand shareholders. Yeah, you know, we floated on the market, and twenty one and a half. Well, million just dollars. I'm going to take you back a yes. little bit further because there's still a number of things within that time. Yes. You're saying as if it's growing sort of by itself, which maybe yes. it did get to that point. But yes. you were in research in both stockbroking and funds management. Then you went to the sales desk in stockbroking. What through the late 1980s and yes. 90s. It is still a huge leap, isn't it, to go from flogging shares to punters to thinking I can invest myself 
their hard-earned money and I can get a return for them. Yes. That's a pretty big leap. It is. It is. And I remember when I started and we, we, you know, we had the unlisted trust and so, so that was a was unit trust. When a you unit started. trust structure. Did you yeah. have to beg people to get that money in the beginning? Oh. Maybe not Tim Hughes with Reg Grundy's money, but did you? Oh. how did that go? One hundred percent. It was begging. Well, Please back me. Well, you, you you'd go around and in a more confident way well, than that. But I had my I had my performance of my super fund, you know, which I managed myself. So I'd go and my marketing was, oh look, this is what I was able to do with my own super fund. Will you give me some money to manage for you? Wow! So it was, that's a pretty simple marketing strategy. <laughs> yeah, and, and it was—I'd send out a quarterly update. There wasn't much of a team, so really the focus was on trying to pick those companies that we thought were cheap and and would perform. And then it was to you know, anyone you come across, you know, say, "Hey, look, if you'd like to give me some money, this is a what we've done." And and at the start, everyone's sort of really focused. On are you putting your own money in, and and they're more likely to support you if they know, you know that you've put all your capital in there. Uh, and then the interesting thing is, after a couple of years, they're more inclined to they don't really worry that much about whether you put your money in or not. It's more the the greed factor comes in. Yeah. Oh, you have you performed? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, it was it was difficult, and I mean, after six months, we had four point four million dollars. So like it, it wasn't much, and yeah, so. The management fee was forty four thousand. But a how year. did you and go from one million to yeah. four point whatever? Oh, because in six again, talking to people. So what you'd uh, have meeting after meeting. Just paint me a picture of what this is like. I'm more the soft sell. Yeah, like people want to come on the journey. When I started, it was everyone I knew go and see and and explain what I'm doing. And then it was more as people turned up. So word of, of mouth then, word of mouth through media. Yes. Back in those days, there wasn't any sort of obviously no social media or direct no. contact. Really, no. could have had a newsletter, but no, nothing really like that. So no. it would have had to be word of mouth and a yeah. bit of um, media support, maybe a bit of advertising. No advertising. No, no, no. It was advertising. Just, no, no. It was just. It was yeah. It was just if if you performed, then it was a lot easier to sell the story, and then people are more inclined to you know, give you money. You know, one of the three things that I'd like to do was write a book because I thought this is an opportunity. To market yourself, really. Well, no, it was more my uncle's written a few books and you know, he lives in the US and, yeah, yeah, we've always, we always, you know, I don't know, a lot of people. Yeah, have they, a dream. They think they've got a book in them and they probably think they want to own a racehorse and own a bit of a restaurant. There's a, various things that you might have that you want to tick off. And that was one of the ones. And, and I thought, well, yeah, I didn't do that well. Uh, at school with English, I was better with the, on the math side. I thought, well, look, why don't I write a book with someone? And Matthew Kidman, who I knew well, he was at, you know, the Sydney Morning Herald you know, business editor there. And this is before I left. Um, before you left? We left Broking, yeah, you know, before I set up, just just as I was going through that transition, you know, I said to Matthew, look, I want to write a book. Would you Do you want to jointly write it with me or ghostwrite it for me? And he said, look, why don't we do it jointly together? So we started doing the book. Yeah, you know, I started managing money. We started writing the book and doing a few chapters. Yeah, you know, doing some interviews of other investors, and then around sort of May that year, Matthew was uh, had decided he'd had enough of journalism and said, "Look, he's always he was always interested in the market." And he said, "Look, I'm in, 
looking at get, getting into funds management. So I suggested a few people that he should go and see and speak to and go for jobs. And so he went for a few interviews and then he ended up ringing me and said, look, I've actually, I've been offered a job. And I thought, oh, gee, I'm writing this book with you. Now you're going to go and work over there. Hey, <laughs> even though I can't afford you, maybe you come <laughs> and work with me. So, yeah, so he, um, I ended up persuading him to come and work with me, even though, even though, when we started, he was getting a mortgage for his house. So he, even though I said, look, I can't pay you much. Can we just share the profit or something like that? He said, no, I need a salary for my mortgage. So when he started in May, by June that year, the the costs of the business were greater than the revenue. So, oh, because you had to pay him the, that's right. the even salary. Though, even though it wasn't much, it was very little. <laughs> but really anyway. that became the beginning of a great friendship. Oh. And Solid uh, exactly. kind of a bromance, and, would we call well, it? Oh, and yeah, he, like he had a great set of skills, yeah, that that I didn't have, and oh, that's right. We worked together for what was it, thirteen or fourteen years. Another great thing around that time, yeah, when I was on the institutional sales side, yeah, I was in Sydney. This is when I came back from New York, and one of the guys in the sales desk said, "Look, why don't we get you know some trainers in." And we're going to get Tommy Smith. Oh, horse trainers. Yeah, oh, yeah horse trainers, trainers. Yeah, not sorry. traders. <laughs> yeah, trainers in, and and because a lot of you know, there's various people in the in the investment side are, are fascinated with horses. Of course, um, gambling. Yeah. Uh, well, <laughs> Odds. Well, well, and- <laughs> that's right. I mean, in theory, investing in the markets, investing, and but it but it has you know some similarities. Yeah, you know, risk risk taking, I suppose. You know, trying to quantify risk taking. And we had one of the Friedmans was working up here then. I think we had Richard Friedman in. Tommy Smith was meant to come in, but he he couldn't make it, so he sent Gay in. And I think we had Pat Holland in, who had just gone from a jockey to a trainer. And we had I think twelve institutional clients. And I, I came across Gay, and what I learned from Gay was before she came in, she said, "Can you send a list of everyone who's coming to lunch?" And so when she came into the room. She had already you know, knew everyone who was going to be there, knew their names, and systematically went around and introduced herself to everyone. And, and what what I learned from that is, yeah, you know, and I, I do it now, and I, I tell my daughter to do it, and you know, I think it's a great skill. Before you go anywhere, you know, do your homework before you go so you can communicate effectively with the people. So, in fact, do you think really a lot of what you do is relationships? Oh, and what you've done over what thirty years is relationships. One hundred percent, yeah, relationships and, and and in theory building trust. Yeah, and, and it works both ways because as we invest in companies, then you know, we believe management is incredibly important. So you're trusting that person, the CEO of the company, to perform for you. So as people give us money to manage. On their behalf, when we buy a share, we see it as giving money to that company yeah, to and, back and them, to, to support back them, them, to support them. So we have to believe in the managing director of that company, and 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 that's trust as well. You were sent to New York. You you mentioned um, you were a stockbroker there. Mm. You were there when the stock market crash of eighty seven happened. That must have been a huge whack in the guts. Firstly, did you keep your job? And when really, I mean, everything stopped and, and yes. nobody, I mean, people lost a huge amount of money, yeah. but nobody was buying shares. So did you keep your job? Well, it, it was it was a, a surreal uh, time to be in in the stock market. And I suppose the funny, you know, the thing is we're talking about it today and there's a lot of people that you know, haven't seen 
anything as extreme as what occurred back in 87. But but living it, it was a, a very scary, bizarre time. Yeah, and I was in New York. Um, I, I remember, well, actually, the, the Friday before the crash, you know, the crash happened. Friday before it, Black Monday. Yeah, in, in New York. Yeah, you know, the market fell a little over 100 points. And that was the biggest point fall since the late 20s. And so I actually went out with a, another Australian to celebrate. You know that we've seen history being made. Then we then we come in on Monday morning, and the market falls five hundred and eight points, you know, twenty five percent, and in and, one day, yeah, and yeah. the carnage. You know, the the next morning, I went out and bought all the papers. <laughs> you know, so I had, you know, you know, I had the history. You know, so I keep the front pages, and and it was it was very it was very scary. More for. What happened around that time, and there was scary why and carnage. Describe it. Well, as in for human beings, you know, people lost a lot of money. I didn't, you know, fortunately, because the market had been very volatile leading up to that, and I'd actually, yeah, I personally had invested a bit in the market, but I'd sold a reasonable amount because I was getting nervous with the volatility. I think there was a stockbroker shot in Boston. I think Mm. there was stockbroker shot in and killed Mm. in in Florida. So. There was enormous pain that was being expressed in in, in various ways. Yeah. You know, so and then uh, you know, I remember ringing a client. These are you know institutional clients over there saying how you know how, how concerned I was about what was happening. You know what does it you know what does it mean? Will it ever recover? And I remember him saying, "Look, you either believe in capitalism or you don't." <laughs> If you believe in capitalism, then then it'll come back. The other funny thing is, I'd I'd already booked a holiday in the latter part of October and I was going with another friend who I worked with. He worked with another broker in New York, um, Fred Oldfield. We'd decided, because we hadn't had a holiday for two years, that we'd and and before the crash it was very easy to make money. We decided we'd fly over to Italy to buy some suits. I mean, pretty extreme. Very eighties. Yeah, yeah, very eighties. Very pre crash eighty seven behaviour. Right. I would it have was, thought. it was. So anyway, we had the week off and we thought, well, we can't afford that now. <laughs> we'll have to keep the old suits. So we wanted to get as far away as we could from New York. And so we ended up booking a trip to sail down the Nile. So you know, wow. there's no mobile phones in those yeah, days. And, yeah. then, and then what I said to Fantastic. my then boss, I said, look, you know, I haven't taken a holiday for two years. There's, there's going to be very little work for the next few months. I'll just take a, I'll take a week off each month. So I did that for the next... Yeah, so what, next, you'd work for three weeks and, and take, take a, a week, week off. off? Yeah. So I went to Carnival yeah. for a week. We skied in Aspen for a week. Went to Zermatt skiing for a week. Very nice. For yeah. some, what did you learn from the crash that has stayed with you? Are you slightly yeah. risk averse? Are you a big risk taker? I don't, I don't think I'm a big – I'm a Capricorn. I think, you know, aren't we low on the risk tolerance? Yeah, I, I don't know. Are you? Yeah, I, I feel that. <laughs> I, I feel like I always like to protect the downside, you know, sort of – Plan for the worst and hope for the best. And the I think the crash is just a good reminder that everything is is cyclical. And I know mm. we talked earlier about you know this being the longest bull market ever in the US. So it has to stop at some point in time. So accept the cyclicality. Um, and and really, I mean, probably one of the things I've learned over the last you know, twenty years is, is as a fund manager or as a good investor. You have to turn down your emotions. You know, so you actually have to work against your emotions. So you have to, again, when everyone's scared, 
you know, you've, you have to have the conviction to be prepared to buy. And when everyone thinks, oh, it's fantastic and you know, everything's you know, it's, it's going to be sunny forever, you've got to be prepared to sell. So it's, it's not great for relationships, turning down emotions, um, but it's, it's, it's very good for investing. When you actually started WAM, under 40 years of age. Or Wilson Asset Management. Oh, Wilson yeah. Asset Management. I think That's I was right. just on 40. I think I was just on, oh, just under, just, around there. Yeah. Just under, just on 40. Yeah. Still pretty young. Yes. Did like you have the, a business plan or was it just all in your head? Oh, no, I broadly had, you know, how we tend to do things. Everything's threes. Yeah. Like I had the idea that I'd like to set up a, a fund, yeah, you know, with a trust structure. I had the idea that I'd also like to set up a listed investment company. And um, I also uh, thought there was an opportunity to set up, there was a structure in those days called pool development funds, which invested in, in companies you know, before they listed on the market. You know, so it was more high risk capital to have one of those as well. So I, I had a broad, you know, just very broad idea. At the beginning, did you ever have to sort of just slightly embellish the truth a bit? Maybe <sighs> tell a few fibs about, oh, yeah, I've got quite a few supporters and, uh, yeah, I've got quite a few oh. million dollars. Oh, I, I, I thought you thinking, I, I'm thinking of when you're saying that Bernie Madoff. <laughs> well, I, I wouldn't that's, put that's, you and no, Bernie no, no, Madoff no, no, in the same sentence, no, no, hopefully another, not. No, but unfortunately his fibs were about his performance. And to me, that's when you... That's the real red flag. Yeah, so. that's 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 the problem, and and it's really the ability to see under that, and and that's the um, you know that's always the challenge. But in terms of a little bit of we, call, well, we well, could call well, it a con, well, we could well, call it a no, bit of an embellishment well, to get well, people on board. No, that's the, all. There was well in the very beginning when I started. I mean, Reg, um, Tim said, "Look, Reg, we'll give you ten million dollars." So I actually initially thought. That I, on you day beauty. one, I'd be managing ten million dollars. So the economics of the business changes a lot. Absolutely. And then it was when I said to Tim, "Hey, look, yeah, ready to go?" And again, he said, "How much are you putting in?" I said, "Half a million." He said, "Okay, we'll match it." So, so it the, came back from ten million to half a million. Well, but he was with uh, maybe more in well, future. Exactly. Yes, That's if right. you and, do and well. What, exactly. Um, I actually thought it was ten up front. Yeah. <laughs> And the money came. So so in the early days, I would talk about committed money. So I always wanted to be factual and it was committed money. So oh, how much are you managing? Uh, it could be a little over 10 million committed. Yeah, so um, Right, not yeah, quite so. in the bank at the moment, but nonetheless, well, it's committed. Committed, yeah. yeah. They had to drill down to no one asked. Actually, someone did ask exactly how much is in there. And it was either Brian Sherman or Lauren Friedman because – Soon after we, you know, in the early days, you know, when Matthew joined, we went down to see them because they they've been highly successful setting up a yeah you know, they they were one of the really early boutiques in Australia. They with, were with, with started Equity Link, Brian but, Sherman and Lawrence. That's Friedman. right, and, and 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 we went down there and we talked about how much we got. And I think those when we saw them, we had twenty million dollars committed, and then and they were telling the story about when they started. And they talked about when they went to see everyone, you know, how little money they had and how they talked about a committed amount of money. So Matthew and I sort of you know, looking at each other, we, we didn't tell them how much we actually had, <laughs> which is probably only 10 million then, but we said 20 million committed. So it sounded like a bigger figure. Yeah. Does the weight of responsibility ever give you nightmares of having three and a half billion yeah. roughly of other people's money that you are responsible for? Uh, no. And if we go back to the very start, 
that there was no doubt that when anyone put some money in, you felt enormous pressure until you'd made money for them. Maybe being one of six, you know, you get a, a level of resilience. And in terms of, you know, how you wake up in the middle of the night and it's dark and all of a sudden you, you sort of, you, you worry about everything. Uh, it's just a terrible time to be awake. Luckily, I'm a great sleeper and I hardly ever wake up in the middle of the night. There was only the, the only time that I did that, um, and it sort of, you know, I had the doubts would I be able to do it? You know, maybe I can't. Was about six years ago, we, we put together a structure, the future generation companies, where the, it's a phenomenal structure I saw in the UK where you ask, fund managers to manage the money for free. And then what you do is um, instead of the fees going to the fund managers, you use part of that fee and give it to charities. And there's two future generation vehicles now, about a billion dollars of funds under management. But it was when we set up the first one, I had to go and ask, there was 14 fund managers to manage money for free. And these are the best fund managers exactly. in the country. Yeah, the best and you boutique had to say, fund managers. Will you not take your percentage, please? Correct, correct. N- now, for a fund manager, like for us, we manage $3.5 billion, we get paid. In fund managers, it's easier to manage some money for free because if we manage another $100 million and didn't get paid and that sort of helped you know, society, then we're still getting paid. You wouldn't notice it. Exactly. We're yeah. getting paid for everything else. So you're just losing a little bit of your capacity. But for me to have to go and ask my, my peers, will you give up that capacity? And, and um, yeah, and, and I needed to get to cover $200 million worth. Well, now we've covered a billion dollars worth. But and, and what surprised me is how generous they were. But I did have a few nights I'd wake up in the middle of the night and think, I'm not going to be able to do this. Um, but hey, hey, good on them. And yeah, and that was that, that was the last time I woke up in the middle of the night doubting myself. Over the 21 years, I think it's we've outperformed the market. I think seventeen of them. How would you say you you built your business? We we talked before about is it word of mouth? Is it performance? But is part of it that it has coincided in recent decade with this massive growth in self funded retirees and self managed super funds, and yes. all that money has to go somewhere. So yes. they don't want to necessarily invest individually. They want to trust someone like you. Yes, is that. Part of the success, it, it, definitely part of it, because we we started fairly early. You know, we had a a trust structure which is for high net worths or, or um, yes, other industry funds, industry super funds. Which once we floated the listed investment company, this is a year and a half in to starting the business, and we started with those two thousand investors. That's how I wanted to grow the business, and and. For a number of reasons. One is I, I actually like that. I think it's a very good structure. Like it's it's a closed end pool of capital, so it's good for the manager. So you know what fee Meaning you you ask people for money, and then the door closes or the, Correct. the and then shutter they, comes yeah, down, like, and you know what how big your fund is. Yeah, that's right. And then they can those shares trade on the stock market, and they can buy or sell those shares. So you never want to be forced to have to buy or forced to sell. So we just start with a pool of capital and, and we are never forced to buy or forced to sell. And what, what it's shown, and I read some research Morgan Stanley did, you know, this is 30 plus years ago, uh, of the US closed end you know, listed investment companies, that they'd outperformed the other managers by one and a half to 2%, like over a 50-year period. So 
I thought there was some advantages in the structure. And also, one of the good things is the shareholders own the company. So we as a board understand that. And I think what a lot of boards today have the problem, they think they own the company. And being shareholders ourselves in other companies, you know, we appreciate that. So you know, we really respect our shareholders. And, and to me, it's great relationships you, know, you build with those shareholders. Yeah. To me, you survive if you add value. If yeah, you know, and in terms of that's how our performance. So, yeah, you know, I think there's a great place, yeah, you know, for those, you know, for the passive pools and capital. Yeah, you know, I assume they'll continue to grow. Yeah, you know, I think short term, it's a structural change that is is here for a long time. I think it's a little bit cyclically. It's you know, everyone sort of off the active managers and focused on the passive managers. I assume when the markets adjust, it'll flow back to the the active managers because but you be- are expensive and oh, you've become very correct. wealthy out of it. Oh, correct. Um, yes, yes. But people want to say, well, why wouldn't I do what Warren Buffett's saying his wife should do when yes. he goes, which yes. is just stick it in an index fund and yes. get the the yes. sort of guaranteed percentage yes. return. Yes, yes. But the interesting thing is what Warren's doing at the moment. He doesn't say he, he he's not closing down Berkshire Hathaway. And giving the billions back to everyone and saying put it in the next fund. <laughs> like I agree with his logic. <laughs> yeah, if if you have someone that you believe can add value, then let them add value. If if they right. can't add value, then they shouldn't exist. You yes. did have a pretty ordinary twenty eighteen nineteen. Yes. All four of your funds failed to beat their benchmarks. Yeah. The uh, I mean the the, the tough Was part. That a huge disappointment. Apart. From oh, no, no. shareholders. Oh, oh, not, not, because it's, I mean, in theory, it's benchmark. So, but I it mean, still reflects your performance, didn't it, in that year? Oh, it was 100%. It reflected our performance. How we invest is, is probably different to most fund managers, where one of the options we have is to hold cash. And the reason we do that is because I've got my own money in there, I'd prefer to. Not lose money, you know. Sort of rule number one, two, and three is don't lose money. So we will end up having very high cash levels at various points in time when we're nervous. And what and, are you good at? Oh, what do you what do you really think you're good at? Is it oh. the is it the numbers? Is it seeing an opportunity that somebody else hasn't, and you yeah. go for it? Yeah. Well, it's it's that that is very important because I've been to situations where. Um, I've been with other fund managers to see a company, and you'll see something they don't see. And, and to me, what a, what a, I love playing the game. I love in our game. It's collecting information. The best information wins. I enjoy. I'm more. I, I enjoy talking to people. You know, collecting information, um, understanding what drives people, understanding. You know, if someone's just taken over as managing director. Yeah, understanding their history and why they're doing what they're doing, and then then you know trying to assess that and and put it all together. You know, sort of the mosaic theory, put it all together, and it gives you a picture. You talk about the game, but you've also created Australia's first listed philanthropic wealth creation vehicle, the Future Generation Companies. Yes. This philanthropic model. Why? Yeah. Oh, I, I think it's very important to be to give back. Where does that come from? Is the next question. I think my parents. Yeah, you know, mum used to be involved in you know, various charities. That's that's where I get half my clothes from. 
<laughs> no, when she'd go, she would. When she'd go, they'd have another jumble sale in those days for the to raise money for the charities. And yeah, I think I think it's that. And and I've always believed it's very important that you're involved in your community. You know, when I was a stockbroker, I, I became a member of the stock exchange. I, I thought it was very important. I paid myself to become a member. The company I worked for wasn't prepared to pay. Yeah, you know, so yeah, you know, being. You know, being involved, um, giving back, and, and you know, to me that was an opportunity that a structure I'd seen in the UK we could put together here, and and you know, for the finance industry now, you know, ten million dollars a year is given is going to not for profit, you know, charities that support uh, mental health, youth mental health, and children at risk, and, and like if I say this, but it sort of nearly breaks your heart to think about it, that you know, if we just say one person then what we're doing is you know, incredibly important. You're a fanatical cyclist too. Now, I remember attending one of your big hall meetings with your shareholders and you announced at the beginning of the meeting that you'd done something like a 150k bike ride the day before and you were feeling a bit sorry and tired for yourself. I was a bit dehydrated. I, dra- I drank dehydrated. a lot of water. I drank a lot of water that and day. So that you weren't <laughs> going to put up with any crap from the floor in terms of questions. Now, this is a very novel way to treat your shareholders, your customers. No, no, I just, I just, it had been a long ride and and I think someone did say that day, they said, geez, you drank a lot of water. And I said, hey, I was very dehydrated. But yeah. do you like to have this very, I mean that quite seriously, do you have a very open dialogue with your customers? Do, oh. do you give as good as they give to you when they want to complain about something? Do you give it back to them? Well, I think we've got to be, I think we've got to be fair. Uh, and, and it works both ways. That's right. When people are disappointed with what you know, what we've delivered for them, then we can explain our case and, and we need to do it fairly. I think any relationship has to be you know, on, a, on a level playing field and, and that's, you know, we try to have that. I do want to ask you what you think now drives you. You've, over 21 years, yeah, third you've created- Third child, it must be the third child. This enormously <laughs> successful business. You made more yeah. money, no doubt, than you could probably know what to do with, although you're putting a lot of it to good use as well. What drives you now? Is it still the thrill of this game that you talk about or the thrill of still making money? There is is that. But also there is, I think when Matthew joined me, he was sort of the first real employee. Then all of a sudden, you know, you got a responsibility. And now we've got 35 other employees, so I have a responsibility for them, to them as well as well as well as the shareholders. Mm. And while the you know Wham Capital and Wham Leaders, Wham Global, well, well, the various listed investment companies exist, then I have a responsibility to to those people, and and they have put their money in, like say, twenty one years ago, on an expectation, and and if I sell the business, then I've just sold them down the river. So. That's not on the agenda. <laughs> How much of your success as a fund manager and growing your business from scratch is due to your innate intelligence, your numeracy, your skills, your drive, you in other words, and how much is luck? Oh, it's a, that that is a big question because you know, if we didn't if Paul Keating didn't create the superannuation now, as it is in Australia, then this wave of money wouldn't be there to be managed, actively managed by people. So there must be a degree of luck in it. 
And the other part, I remember Matthew Kidman, before he joined me, he went to see some other fund managers. And I said, oh, look, what do you think? Do you think Jeff's a good fund manager? And I, I remember him telling me, he said, one of them said, I'm not sure, but I know he's a moneymaker. So <laughs> who knows? <laughs> who knows? Jeff Wilson, been great talking to you. Thank you. Thanks, Helen. I hope you enjoyed Build It, Thou Come. Let me know via Twitter at Helen underscore Daly. Better still, let your family, friends and colleagues know. Share it around your networks. And I'd love you to give it a star rating or a review. Be sure to subscribe as there are plenty of upcoming episodes you don't want to miss with more amazing innovators and entrepreneurs on how they turned their light bulb idea into an empire.